Jenna Ellis in the morning on American Family Radio. Jenna, first, good morning. Great to be with you, the queen of talk radio in America. The left does not want to honor our freedoms, and we have a responsibility to fight back. I love talking about the things of God because of truth and the biblical worldview. Fill that void with a vision that runs so deep that it dilutes the woke agenda. Well, thank you, Jenna. Right from the beginning, I knew you, so it's an honor to be with you, and you're doing really well. Proud of you. Former legal counsel to President Trump. Ellis. Well, good morning and happy Monday. And I hope that all of you had a wonderful weekend during this beautiful summer. And um, it's still summer, by the way. I got a an ad for um, some fall like pumpkins and pumpkin spice. And I know that being, you know, a, a young white woman, it was obviously clearly targeted to me. And that's OK, because I love pumpkin spice. But I was like too soon too soon. I want to enjoy everything, sunshine, outdoors, ridiculously hot summer, and I love it. Uh, But what I was doing over the weekend was uh, actually just just laughing at the incredible job that Tucker Carlson did with the Family Leadership Summit and the candidates for president that he interviewed throughout the day Friday. If you missed this, uh, somehow, I, mean, I I have so many clips this morning that I pulled, and these were just my favorites. We could literally spend the entire hour just playing clips uh, for you from the best comments and the best moments that, that Tucker really, I think, focused in on each candidate's weakness and exploited it because most of these uh, people who are running for president are clearly just politicians and they're not used to uh, actually being questioned. And it wasn't even aggressive or disrespectful. It was simply uh, asking the questions that they were very uh, clearly uncomfortable with. And um, so this is one of those days that I wish that we had like a three hour radio program because then I could get to everything. But uh, we're going to get to most of it. And I, I want to start with Glenn Beck's opening remark, because this this was the funniest one. And this was actually my dad's favorite because um, he was watching this as well. And it it was just it it was so hilarious because Tucker uh, completely ended Asa Hutchinson's uh, career and and his his flailing bid for president. Did did anybody actually even remember that he's still running for president? I almost didn't. Um, But he, of course, is the former governor of Arkansas. And he had such terrible, terrible responses on everything from COVID to uh, tra- the transgender bill that he vetoed and uh, Tucker asking him if he actually believes that uh, people and individuals can change their sex. And this is what Glenn Beck said about Asa Hutchinson. This is clip one. I don't think I've ever seen anything uh, <laughs> quite like that. Uh You know, at at one point in America, the hopes and dreams of of hundreds and hundreds of people as they looked up into the sky and those in the sky that looked down, uh, they thought it was going to go in one way. And uh, 29 seconds later, the entire Hindenburg was on the ground. And I think that's maybe what we saw today. And so that was Glenn's Beck com- uh, Glenn Beck's comment, and I want to welcome in my friend Steve Deese, who is uh, a Blaze TV host and the executive producer of Nefarious Movie, who was also there at this event that was uh, sponsored or uh, hosted by Blaze TV for his reaction overall. So, Steve, thanks so much for joining me this morning. Good morning, Jenna. Thank you. 
Yeah, absolutely. So overall, uh, what was your impression of Tucker Carlson and his his total evisceration of at least several of the candidates? You know, I get asked a lot how we turned Iowa so red. I mean, when I started off as a local radio host in Iowa, Democrats had complete control. And uh, we had sent Tom Harkin to the Senate for over 30 years via a post a mailbox in Indianola, Iowa, that he called a residence. It was never here. And so how did we do this? How did we turn Iowa redder than Texas in about a decade? One of the major tools we had is I had access to the largest platform in the state, the Big Blowtorch, WHO Radio. And so Republicans had to talk to me. And it gave me an opportunity to do what the the corporate media will never do, which is hit them from the right, Jenna. They only hit them from the left. And I think this is something very important for audiences at AFA to understand, that there is a reason why. Because I know you're frustrated every cycle. Why do we let the left-wing media host our debates? It's uh, It's not a bug. It's a feature. They don't want the candidates hit from the right. They will fall apart. The wheat and the chaff will be separated very quickly. They want them hit from the left so that you think that Asa Hutchinson is indistinguishable from Ron DeSantis, so that you think Mike Pence is indistinguishable from Donald Trump. They want them hit from the left, not from the right, because that maintains the brand and maintains their control. And I just decimated Republican Party leadership in our state. They'd have to come on my show, and I got to hit them from the right with questions, and they would collapse. That's exactly what you saw Tucker do on that stage last Friday. That is people from the right. A great point, uh, Steve Deese. And hitting Republicans from the right will show exactly what they are made of. And for Asa Hutchinson in particular, uh, the fact that he was so weak on the transgender issues and said, can we talk about real issues? The fact that Mike Pence uh, said basically that he didn't care about election integrity, just leave it up to the states to whatever they wanted to do. And and Tucker Mm -hmm. said, why don't we just get rid of the voting machines? And he would not commit to things. And, And it was so patently obvious how frustrated they got with that. Um, and so I want to talk about Ron DeSantis, though, and it's uh, and you and I are both uh, supporters of Ron DeSantis. Um, so, you know, full disclosure on that. Um, but I thought that his responses were actually so great. And of course, you know, the the um, the more Trump leaning folks and the people who don't want Trump to be hit from the right, um, of course, slammed Ron DeSantis on some of his responses to Ukraine and some of these things. But I actually thought his responses were spot on and he did such a good job. So so I want to play uh, one of these clips for you. But overall, what was your impression of Ron DeSantis? Well, he didn't tell Tucker Carlson that he's willing to give Zelensky even more weapons than Joe Biden is, as Donald Trump did yesterday on Fox News. So I guess there's that um, on the Ukraine stuff. I actually thought, and I said this all day long on the blaze, the only person there was any pressure on is from a candidate standpoint was DeSantis. Trump was not there. He's the next alpha. He had to be dominant. He gets the cleanup spot. He's going, he's batting last. And so he's got to go in there and, and be Ron Bleep and DeSantis. People have to see how he managed to pull off what he did in Florida, because if you don't live there or follow it, it's hard to translate that into a message, and people need to see you as the leader that could do the stuff that your repu- reputation precedes. And so I thought, given the amount of pressure on him to go in there, whom he was getting questioned by, I thought that he clearly got the hardest interview of the afternoon session, and I'm totally fine with that because I thought they all should have gotten in harder, harder interviews in the afternoon session. And I thought he absolutely uh, did a great job, was overall in command. 
And I will tell you, I've heard from a lot of people after the event and talked to a lot of people and leaders from around the country who were there. And overall, I would say the reviews for what they saw from Ron DeSantis were uh, were very high. And the one the one thing about this race, I think people also need to understand, we don't have national primaries. We have state by state primaries. The only opinions that matter for the next 182 days are people who live in Iowa or people who can influence what people in Iowa think. If you can't do that, if you're not one of those two things, then you may have a large audience, but you don't really have a lot of influence. And what the former president is doing right now is absolutely opening the door for Ron DeSantis to compete and to win in Iowa, unnecessarily alienating our very popular governor, for example, who signed landmark pro-life legislation on the stage at the event. So this is really a one-state race right now. If Trump wins Iowa, and this is what I would advise him to do if I were working for him, you're going to get up the next morning and say, this race is over. We won the state that beat us the last time, that made this a race the last time with Ted Cruz. Pardon me, it's time to move on because we've still got to beat the Department of Justice to even get to the election. So it's time to unite and move on. So DeSantis has to win Iowa, or at least it's got to be really, really close to justify the race moving on. And that was an Iowa audience, Jenna, with 500-plus pastors in the room. And those pastors are going to decide the caucuses. In 2016, 62% of the Iowa caucus turnout were evangelicals. And so I thought he shined in front of that audience, and he had to. Yeah, and and I fully agree with your analysis, Steve Deese, and um, and I think that all eyes really were on DeSantis and whether he could uh, perform well, whether he could resonate with that audience. He came out very strongly pro-life. He said, I have been a pro-life president. I will be a pro-life president. Um, he didn't hesitate at all. He said he was unapologetic about that. Um, he spoke to the issues that people uh, in Iowa and, and I think generally in the evangelical community really care about. And, um, and, and let's not forget that this was the event back in 2015 that mm-hmm. uh, Trump very famously uh, talked about, you know, the, the McCain war hero backstage. Yeah. Yep. Watching that. Ten, ten, I was 10 feet from it. And I walked into that. I walked into that event that day thinking I, I'm going to get Donald Trump's going to close me and I'm going to that campaign. And I walked out of that event saying, you know, hey, Norman Vincent Peale, who makes Joel Osteen look like Augustine's my favorite theologian. And uh, I've never done anything wrong, so I've never asked God for forgiveness. And John McCain, I like, I like soldiers better when they aren't captured. Hard to make me, it's hard to turn John McCain into a sympathetic figure to me. I can't, <laughs> couldn't stand him. But, you know, attacking him on the one thing about him that was laudable, dar- darn near did it. And I walked out of there thinking, man, I can't do this. I, I, and so I changed my mind and I didn't sign up. Now, you know, in hindsight, I had no idea what was coming uh, later on. And I think that's the gravitational pull of this race, Jenna, which is Ron DeSantis, it, 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 what he represents or people think he represents or hope he represents is the possibility that you can get Trump-like disruption, disruption with better self-discipline and not without self-inflicted wounds. Now, maybe you can't. Maybe that's a sunk cost. Maybe it's a cost of doing business. You know, it's hard to break an omelet or make an omelet, make an omelet without breaking a few eggs. Maybe you cannot go against the Leviathan without splatter and collateral damage. But I think that's really the ultimate case for a DeSantis presidency is that he is the stronger leader because he can do the things we love that Trump did without the things that we cringe that Trump did. Now, maybe this campaign will prove that's not true, but that's basically the impetus for his campaign. 
Yes, and and that's his main selling point and also his record that he's shown in Florida with everyone saying, well, he's not ready for the presidency. The left will run all over him. He can't lead. They just have to look at how he took a really purple-leaning blue state and in just four years make it made it solidly red. And I'm a person that wants America to look more like Florida in terms of the policies and all of those wins. He talked about uh, CBDC and, you know, and taking away uh, the ability of China to buy land. I mean, you know, so many things that he understands all of this policy. But just in the last uh, three minutes that I have with you here, um, Steve Deese, and I really appreciate your commentary. I think it's so valuable. Um, How much do you think that Trump hurt himself or was it okay ultimately that he didn't show up this time in Iowa? I think it's a big mistake. Number one, and Trump knows this as a master marketer, don't ever give people the impression that they can get by without your product. The number one thing that I heard after the event was, huh, so we can have a big time event and we can have a significant event without the presence and, and, the, tr- and the show, the showmanship that Trump brings. And you don't want that to seep into people's minds. And if I'm Ron DeSantis, if I could have even had a C plus effort and gotten people to think that way, that's a bigger win for me because I have to separate a certain amount of people from the idea that we can do this without the Trump labeling and Trump in Iowa is, is setting that notion to people. He's telling them you can do this without me. Um, and I think, again, it's a one thing. And the other thing that he's trying to it's almost like Trump is trying to provoke our governor, who's more popular than either Trump or DeSantis combined with the grassroots. It's like he's trying to provoke her to come in against him. And that would not work well for him. I mean, she has she has more juice than any Republican statewide office holder has in any caucus cycle I can remember. In most caucus cycles, Jenna, I would want the Republican senator or governor to endorse against me because they're total rhinos. And that would help me convince my own base. See, I told you they weren't one of us. In this race, uh, she has a great amount of cachet with our base and has earned it all. And I just don't understand why the president, the former president, keeps trying to provoke her to come in after him. Because if he does that, he's going to have uh, he's going to he's not going to give the speech on January 15th on caucus night that maybe he's anticipating. And, you know, I heard that as well after uh, the event, just with some of the Twitter commentary I read, you know, some of your tweets as well, just saying, you know, this this event proved that we have a a lot of great candidates and particularly Ron DeSantis, Vivek Ramaswamy, uh, without mentioning Donald Trump. That was not the focus. And Tucker did a great job of not saying and not asking the questions of the contrast between the candidates and Donald Trump, but just the candidates and conservative policy. And that was a huge mm-hmm. win. So Steve Deese, really appreciate your commentary. Um, so incredibly important and look forward to talking with you more as we continue all of this. We'll be right back with more here on Jenna Ellis in the morning. Welcome back to Jenna Ellis in the Morning on American Family Radio. No, 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 no. But if I can make some general observations, which I think are more edifying than just like savaging Mike Pence. Um, I, I think, <laughs> which I'm not going to do because that would be wrong. And it would be wrong because it's too easy. And the easy things are not rewarding, are they? You don't feel good when you beat your five-year-old in soccer or ping pong, like what? 
<laughs> that was Tucker Carlson. The next day after the Family Leaders Summit and that candidate forum in Iowa, uh, for Turning Point and talking about uh, his view of how the candidates performed and specifically calling out and naming Mike Pence. And I want to bring on Aaron McIntyre, who is also a columnist for Blaze TV. And uh, Aaron, really uh, looking forward to your commentary as well on the uh, forum as a whole. And so uh, your take overall on uh, how important this event is to Iowa and specifically um, the evangelical Christian vote. Well, obviously, the event has a huge sway. Iowa is a you know is the caucus state. It's uh, one of the earliest actors. It sets the tone uh, for the primary. Obviously, also due to the evangelical vote there at the family leadership summit, uh, you're going to have a, a people who sway a lot of you know kind of those discussions early on. There's a lot of horse trading that goes on. There's a lot of deal making. A lot of persuasion that happens in these caucuses in a way that doesn't happen in other primary states. And so this event probably had a large impact in kind of that early voting. Yeah, a hundred percent, and and I think um, it's it's still my opinion now after the fact that um, it it was ultimately uh, probably a net negative for uh, Donald Trump to not appear. And you know, I had um, David Brody on the show last week, uh, looking forward to this event. Um, you know, political commentator and. Um, uh, and and host at uh, CBN, and you know, and he and I had agreed that you know when you're running roughly 30 percentage points ahead in the polls, um, like you know if you believe the polls that Donald Trump is the clear front runner, um, then you don't do these types of you know multi candidate events. And yet the fact that it was this one on one sitting down with Tucker Carlson and especially this type of forum. Um, for how well both Vivek Ramaswamy and Ron DeSantis, who I think were the clear winners of the event, how well they performed, and Trump clearly uh, believes and consistently says that you know DeSantis is uh, or acts like uh, DeSantis is his main uh, primary competition. Um, I really do think that um, ultimately it it did become a net negative for him to uh, to not even have any of the headlines after the fact. He didn't have any of the clips from the Tucker interview and what ultimately happened Aaron McIntyre was that when he went to the turning point event the next day it was a speech and people were asking well does he not want to sit down with Tucker Carlson in a forum where he's going to be asked about his record and um, and how do you think that that played overall not only in Iowa but to um, the general voters and some of the people who may still like Donald Trump but are um, looking potentially at at other candidates? Well, I, I think it's a it's a bit of a mixed bag. I think you're right that the conventional wisdom is when you have the kind of lead that Trump does, putting yourself in a multi-candidate format kind of uh, you know lowers you down to the level of your competition. So that's probably what he was thinking. I think that's generally good advice. However, due to this particular format, and to be fair, this was a very different format. That's one of the things that was so valuable about this in the way that other, you know, debates and things have just not been useful early on the primary was that it had that one-on-one attention. Instead of having a bunch of candidates vying for little sound bites, constantly interrupting each other, barely able to make a point, you had a strong, concentrated discussion one-on-one with Tucker Carlson getting good, strong questions. And when you see that kind of environment, you're right. You see Vivek, he did really well. Ron DeSantis had a strong performance. Other people blew themselves up on stage, you know. And I think Trump, especially given his 
ability to speak and his rapport with Tucker Carlson would have been strong in that event. He could have, he could have set himself apart along with others. But I do under, understand his strategic decision there by not doing that. Overall, I think it probably would have been wise for him to join, but I don't think it does serious damage to him either. I thought it was really fascinating that uh, there weren't the the truth social posts um, in the aftermath of of any of of the candidates. I mean, I was uh, I was kind of waiting and anticipating to see what uh, Trump might say, especially about some of the candidates that, like you said, clearly uh, blew themselves up. And I think that that was, uh, you know, everybody's take on uh, some of the candidates, specifically um, Asa Hutchinson, Mike Pence, and even Tim Scott, um, you know, really did not seem uh, strong on his foreign policy understanding and some of this. And so I think that you're right as well, um, Aaron McIntyre uh, from the Blaze TV, that uh, you know, this type of format was very, very helpful to actually drill down with to where the candidates are truly thinking and what their responses are to the difficult questions that they can really avoid in a, a multi-candidate form where all of them are on the stage. You get, you know, 30 seconds to respond to something and you can't develop and articulate your view. And everybody's kind of talking over each other and they're taking shots at each other because they're all standing on the stage. And and I always wonder, is that really all that helpful uh, to the American public and informing us of our vote? Or is it more entertainment driven? And this had a flavor, even though it was about 20, 25 minutes per candidate, it still had this flavor of a more um, antiquated Lincoln Douglas style format, even though you know Tucker isn't running. Um, I actually thought by 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 the midway point he's going to be polling higher than than these candidates <laughs> after the end because he was doing so great in just articulating. Here's conservative policy. What do you think about that? And and pushing back. And I do think it was actually really helpful. And um, so I want to also talk about um, Vivek Ramaswamy because uh, you know he was very clearly. Uh, had a strong presence. I think he came across very well. He's doing um, an excellent job on his earned media tour. When the um, when the the fundraising came out for quarter two, um, he's very clearly down. And so the only reason that he has been able to uh, get higher in the polls, in my opinion, is because he is consistently going on opposition media. He's going on, I mean, he comes on this program all the time. Um, we you know, ask everybody on the program. He himself comes on and decides to come on. And he continues to consistently get in front of the American people. And he did really well. So I want to get your uh, perspective and your take, uh, Aaron McIntyre, on what he said to this. I actually thought overall this was his best response, which was to the January 6th issue. This is cut nine. You want to know what caused January 6th is pervasive censorship in this country in the lead up to January 6th. You tell people in this country they cannot speak, that is when they scream. You tell people they cannot scream, that is when they tear things down. And so the reality is we were told that you could not question where the virus came from when we all knew it came from a lab in Wuhan, which now they admit. We were told that you could not send a private message to someone on the eve of an election that Hunter Biden's laptop story was actually a true story worth considering before an election. You were systematically suppressed. So this is, think about this. You told you had to be locked down, had to take a vaccine that was mandated and forced down your throat, stay locked down in your home while Antifa and BLM roam and burn the streets of this country. So that's the lead up of one full year of telling people you have to shut up, sit down and do as you're told. 
And then you tell them, okay, there's an election where you didn't get the information that you needed, such as the Hunter Biden laptop story being real and suppressed. That's what caused January 6th, is a cycle of censorship in this country. And until we look ourselves in the mirror and admit truth on that, we will not move forward as a country. And I think that's the real cause. And we're not, and I'm going to. So, so your response to that clip, I thought it was fantastic. Yeah, no, he, he actually said basically every Democrat's favorite uh, Martin Luther King Jr. line, which is riots are the voice of the unheard, uh, which is something that you, you just don't hear from many Republicans. But he's, of course, actually absolutely right. And, and the thing here is even Ron DeSantis, who, of course, did a great job during COVID and has a very strong record, hasn't really tapped in, I think, in a, in a, in a, in a gut check level with the outrage that a lot of people feel and still feel over the lockdowns, over the lying, over everything that followed during the, the summer of George Floyd and the, and the election. They're not speaking to the outrage of kind of how, how terribly people were treated and how much their lives were disrupted. And Vivek there really spoke to it directly. He made an excellent point and talked about how dangerous it is to ignore people and pretend like these things don't matter, to pretend like a lockdowns never happened. People weren't thrown out of their churches. They didn't have to watch their loved ones, you know, uh, say, say goodbye to their loved ones on Skype or through some kind of plastic bubble as they died. These are real things that happened to real people. A lot of people are still feeling the effects of that. They lost their jobs, they, you know, because they wouldn't take a vaccine. They still feel those things. They feel lied to by their government. They feel manipulated by these people. And him speaking to that in such a powerful way definitely puts him... Uh, in a different place. He he absolutely had the strongest performance there. I don't I don't think he's going to have the ability to get across the finish line in the primary as a winner, but he's certainly setting himself up to have a very strong profile, possibly a cabinet position or something or or something else run for another position. He, he's certainly putting himself in that kind of place. I would agree with that uh, analysis, and I think that his ability to so effectively communicate to uh, the emotion of what a lot of people are feeling in this country that, uh, you know, we don't have free and fair elections, that we don't get heard. There is so much censorship. Um, this is why the you know Missouri versus Biden case is so important and why the whole COVID narrative over the last three years, Americans are so frustrated. And you contrast what Vivek is saying so unapologetically uh, that is tapping into that while then drawing out the policy and not just going toward this narrative of, well, was it in a was it in an insurrection or not? You know, and kind of taking uh, the, the question as it's presented, he is uh, actually responding to something else and articulating that well. Contrast that then to how Mike Pence uh, responded when he was asked and pressed by Tucker Carlson about free and fair elections, uh, specifically what he would do as president to ensure that Americans genuinely believe in the fairness of our elections. This is cut six. Why not just get rid of electronic voting machines and call it a day and then we don't have to debate it? Well, I'm, uh, I would certainly be open to that. Is there a downside? <laughs> but but what, I, what I believe, Tucker, is that states govern elections. States ought to conduct our elections. In fact, our founding fathers debated this at the Constitutional Convention. This, to me, Aaron, was just the, the most 
pacifyingly condescending response to say, as the federal government, I'm going to leave it to the states to run their elections however they want. Sorry, we can't touch it. And and to blame that basically on the Constitution instead of giving his view of policy. And I thought, well, Vivek did so well in tapping into America's uh, feelings on the conservative side. Pence utterly failed doing that in his response to this. Yeah, I mean, he has to. Pence was complicit in the whole thing, right? Like, he he, he uh, spent a lot of time trying to justify his actions, and it was kind of embarrassing because he should have known that these questions were coming from Tucker Carlson, that Tucker Carlson wasn't going to let him out of the pocket for this, but he was completely unprepared. And you're right, the fact that he then tried to pretend like, oh, well, uh, it's all about the states, it's the states' problems. And to be fair, like, yeah, okay, people in, you know, the governor should be taking action, uh, again, Big credit to Ron DeSantis for taking action in Florida and, and helping to clean up elections there. That's something that everyone should be doing. I know other governors are taking that kind of action. But that is not the kind of answer that people want to hear from a national leader, especially when they suspect that there might have been foul play or at the very least open manipulation. I mean, Time Magazine wrote an article bragging about how they fortified the election. I mean, how, how much more obvious do you need to get? People feel this in their gut. They know that something's up, and they don't want to hear from somebody who's running for president of the United States that, well, well, yeah, elections, I mean, maybe we win some, maybe we lose some. Uh, That's up to the states if they actually want to make them free or fair. That's unacceptable. Yeah, I I mean, to me, the the natural follow-up question to that was, okay, so if if states then – uh, run their elections with blatant fraud or cheating, you'd be fine with that and just say, well, hey, it's up to the states. I mean, you know, how far does this go? And of course, he he should at least be addressing the issue of how Americans don't have confidence in our elections. And that's really the main issue. And I think that Democrats are doing a disservice to uh, to America by not recognizing that that is the issue. And if America doesn't trust our elections, then that is a problem. And it was the same type of response that Pence also gave when Tucker was talking to him about Ukraine. And he said, well, you know, what what about our border? Why don't why aren't you concerned? Uh, why are you more concerned about Ukraine than, you know, than our border? And he said, you know, that, that's not my concern. That's not my concern. And it just came across as as so elitist, for lack of a better word. Yeah, it's like what I said when I was doing the coverage for the Blaze there at the event. I mean, find you a president that looks at you that the way Mike Pence looks at a random Ukrainian. Like this guy, (laughs) obviously, like he's telling these glowing stories about, you know, all these freedom fighters and the things that he's doing for them and the weapons he's providing them. And it's like, man, I wish I had a president that talked about people in the United States that way. I wish Mike Pence cared about someone in the inner city or someone in, you know, rural Iowa who's trying to struggle to, you know, to put food on the table. I wish he was talking about parents, uh, you know, at at the border whose children are no longer being, uh, you know, uh, uh, hit by a fentanyl, you know, because they have now strengthened the border. Like, I wish he cared about the issues that affect Americans the way he cares about Ukraine. Yeah, and and I think he came across as a total globalist, elitist hack, which is uh, a lot of America's opinions of him, and so Tucker just simply exploited that. Uh, But Aaron McIntyre, host on Blaze TV and columnist, thanks so much. We're already out of time, and uh, we will be right back with more analysis here on Jenna Ellis in the morning. There's so
Welcome back to Jenna Ellis in the Morning on American Family Radio. Welcome back. And we are continuing our discussion and analysis of the Family Leader Summit in Iowa that was throughout the day Friday. And if you missed this and all of this is new and you are uh, wanting to see Tucker Carlson's one-on-one interviews with each of these presidential candidates, uh, which included Tim Scott, Asa Hutchinson, Mike Pence, Nikki Haley, Vivek Ramaswamy, and Governor Ron DeSantis, uh, you can watch that on the Blaze TV or also uh, at uh, tuckercarlson.com. He has posted uh, those videos as well. And so uh, for our last and uh, last but not least, uh, one of my favorite people who is also a Blaze TV contributor. And so we've had uh, all of the great guys from the Blaze on. Uh, Delano Squires, who is a contributor there and also a research fellow of life, uh, religion and family at the Heritage Institute joins me now. And um, Delano, I, I want to get your overall impression of the summit and uh, the candidates, your your winners and losers uh, overall before I ask you um, specifically about a couple of these uh, candidates' responses. Sure. Um, and good morning, Jenna. Thank you for having me back on. Um, I-, I thought the summit was a really great event. Um, the crowd seemed engaged, respectful. I've heard people use the term Iowa nice. I, I see where that comes from. Um, in terms of the candidates and the performance, I actually think, you know, things broke out in three fairly straightforward tiers. Uh, I think the, the, the top tier was certainly, um, you know, Ron DeSantis and Vivek Ramaswamy. Uh, I actually think, you know, Vivek was, you know, Probably the most his his interview was to me most far reaching. I mean, he, he hit on some like major themes, bigger themes about what it means to be an American um, and to lead a good life. Um, you know, he talked about God and 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 he didn't use the term purpose, but it was it was a somewhat sort of larger and broader speech. So I think DeSantis and Ramaswamy were in the top tier. I think Nikki Haley and Tim Scott didn't really do anything to harm themselves. I'd put Nikki Haley a little bit above Tim Scott. Um, I, I also thought they didn't face as tough a question, line of questioning from Tucker Carlson. And then easily in the bottom tier um, were Asa Hutchinson and Mike Pence. Uh, I actually think Asa Hutchinson provided some of the you know most tragically comedic moments of the event. <laughs> Um, but you need someone like him uh, in order to um, provide some of the, you know, better commentary. So he, he actually helped us out a lot. And for that, I'm very appreciative. <laughs> yeah, uh, he did. And I think that there was a very clear contrast between the people who are just the Republicans in name only. And um, as, mm-hmm. as Steve Deese said in the first segment of this show, uh, where Tucker was hitting these candidates from the right, they weren't expecting mm-hmm. that. And that drew that clear contrast. Um, so I, I want to ask you about Asa Hutchinson um, in, a, in a moment. But um, but going back to Vivek, because, um, you know, you and I have talked a lot um, on various panels on this show about um, the the fundamental necessity of God as a as a foundational biblical worldview underpinning to everything that we mm-hmm. do in law and politics and society. And uh, one of the main responses that I get from our AFR family is how much they appreciate Vivek, but uh, they 
a lot of them say, but I just can't vote for someone who is a Hindu. Um, what mm-hmm. is what is your thought on that generally um, as a Christian in terms of approaching uh, whether or not uh, Christians should select and prefer a Hindu for our leader and how that uh, did or did not impact his reception in a, a predominantly evangelical audience in Iowa? Well, I don't think it really impacted his reception. I think people seem to be pretty open to what it is that he had to say. Um, I think the first question is a fair question. Um, and first I'll start by saying I, I wouldn't criticize or demonize a person who raised this question. All right. Um, here, here's how I come down on it. Uh, in, a, in a couple ways. One, as a believer, would I prefer to vote for someone whose biblical worldview actually informs their policy positions? Yes, I would. Um, but I also believe in common grace. Um, and a candidate that affirms the dignity of human life, that affirms that there is that we are all made by our creator, so, that, so they affirm that there's a, a power higher than, than civil government, a candidate that affirms that marriage is between one male and one female for one lifetime, um, is a person that I'm at least, I'll at least be open to, because even though they don't have the same foundation that I do, um, they, they can at least agree with many of my sort of core convictions and positions. And in fact, I would, I, I think I'd prefer someone like this to someone who says that they go to church, but then either votes in a way that is antithetical to their biblical beliefs, um, or endorses or engages in political rhetoric that runs counter to their self-professed biblical beliefs. So again, I, I think it's a fair question, but I, I try to, I think it's important to understand, you know, the foundation upon which a person builds their political positions, because that, that actually does matter a lot. And I think you and I have both seen over the last couple of years, even people who say that they're Christian, uh, if their foundation is not solid, they, they can be moved as well. Um, so, I, yeah, I, I get why people would say that. I think similar things came up, you know, with, with Mitt Romney, you know, about evangelicals voting for a Mormon. And in fact, Glenn Beck mm-hmm. brought, brought that up on the air during the coverage. Um, but, you know, a, a, a Hindu who affirms and promotes biblical perspectives on what I call sort of the facts, family, abortion, culture, and the truth about sex, to me is someone I could probably work with more than a crino, a Christian in name only, who <laughs> soft pedals leftism and, and wraps it in sort of, you know, conservative colloquialisms. Yes, and in the Bible does speak to lukewarm Christians, which I would put people who mm-hmm. profess to be a Christian and then act in their political beliefs or actions contrary to the biblical worldview as squarely fitting right. into that category. And uh, and I appreciate your analysis, and I would agree with you uh, that the actions are incredibly important and where a candidate actually falls in terms of their views on policy and law and limited government and the foundation of uh, biblical truth of, of humans, um, of 
uh, original sin of human sexuality of those things. And for someone mm-hmm. like Vivek, who, you know, I don't agree with with his um, faith, but I do agree with his view on humanity and some of those things. I would have no problem voting for someone like him as a better candidate, in my opinion, than someone like, for example, um, Asa Hutchinson, who does profess to be a Christian. And then uh, this was his response when he asked if he really believes that people can change sex in the context of a transgender bill that he vetoed. And so this is the Christian who is responding to, or the professed Christian responding to the issue of human sexuality. This is cut four. You have repeatedly described delaying a child's natural progression from childhood to adulthood through adolescence. You've described that as, quote, treatment. And so that raises the, I mean, clearly you've answered the question. You believe it's treatment. You believe, I suppose, that people can change their sex. Because if you don't believe that, you wouldn't call it treatment, would you? Well, <laughs> and, and that was about it, right? I mean, he went on to say a few other things, but he, he was just stunned. And he just, and, and, and basically he equivocated. And, um, mm-hmm. and that to me is someone who is disqualifying himself from a considered Christian's vote. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, again, you know, to, to the governor, I appreciate, former governor, I appreciate him coming and giving us something to talk about um, for, you know, a, a decent part of the day. But his his responses, to me, don't sound particularly Christian. Um, mm-hmm. Now, now one of the things that, that he tries to do, and I think, I think politicians, and, and all politicians do this, they, they get a sense of who their base is. They, f- they figure out how to frame their positions in language that their base will respond to, and then they try to work their base by, you know, engaging in that dialogue for as long as possible until people get um, awakened to what's going on. I, def- I see this on the left, particularly with, with the black community, all the time. They'll, they'll try to speak um, in the language of civil rights and, and, and to make black folk think, oh, you know, we, we have your back, we understand, we're, we're forwarding your agenda, all while, while sneaking, you know, destructive uh, ideas um, into the community. And I think there are politicians on the right who do something similar. So the reason I say that is that Asa Hutchinson affirmed that there are two quote-unquote genders. I, I quibble a little bit. I'd like, I'd prefer more conservatives to say there are two sexes, but let's yes. leave that aside for right now. But I never heard him clearly state that, you know, there are two genders and I don't believe people can switch from one to the other. All right. So he, he leaves the door open. Um, the other thing I think, and I brought this up on, on the telecast, um, Walmart, I believe, is the largest employer, certainly the largest private employer in the state of Arkansas. And the Walton family, the family that, that started Walmart, was firmly against that bill. And they sent out um, uh, an official statement after the former governor vetoed it, thanking him for doing so, using all of the left terms about inclusion and inclusive economy and so on, building, you know, laws targeting vulnerable communities, all of that language. So I'm not surprised. And actually, Jenna, I would respect politicians slightly more if they would say, look, the business community, you know, are some of my largest supporters. Walmart is our largest employer. 
Um, they don't like the bill, and I can't do anything to alienate them. At, at least they would be honest mm-hmm. in terms of their motivation. So I, I would prefer that to people who speak Christianese on stage, but then they vote like pagans behind behind the scenes. A hundred percent. And, you know, and, and Hutchinson's response, uh, Delana Squires, to me was the same type of equivocation that Pence had on the election integrity question of just saying, well, you know, this is left to the legislature and almost blaming it on the process and the Constitution Mm -hmm. instead of very clearly saying, this is where I stand and I'm unapologetic. And I think that that's why uh, Vivek is really winning a lot of people to his cause and also why Ron DeSantis did so well, because both of those men said very clearly, boldly and courageously we are not going to apologize for our positions. And so um, so I would, I agree, I would rather vote for someone who has the right positions, they're unapologetic for it, than these Christians in name only. Mm-hmm. And that was why I proudly voted for Donald Trump for uh, 2016 mm-hmm. and 2020, because so many people back then, I mean, I remember the days when, you know, I was being accused of not even being a Christian if I supported Donald Trump. Mm-hmm. I mean, now it's like, you're not a Christian if you don't. And I'm going, wait a second, you know, that we're, both of those arguments are, are failures uh, for two totally uh, inverse reasons. But um, but right. he had, you know, whether or not you believe that, that Donald Trump is a very sincere Christian, I happen to believe that that he is a Christian just based on my uh, personal friendship with him and, and obviously my work with him. Um, and I think that that was reflected in his policy. And I'm surprised to see him backing off of some of these issues like pro-life and um, the LGBTQ agenda and, and equivocating now on some of those things and being um, hit from the right by someone like Ron DeSantis. But I think these are the right. questions that Christians need to be asking instead of who do we prefer as a personality? Who in 2024 is going to stand up and unapologetically best represent the Christian biblical worldview of everything in law and politics, human sexuality included, and be unapologetic for it? I, absolutely, I, I agree with you 100. percent Now, I may, I, I may come down in a, in a, on a different side in terms of the former president's, uh, you know, sort of spiritual wall. But again, it doesn't actually. My opinion on it doesn't matter because ultimately, God, God is, is is our judge. Um, but as a believer, before I go into the voting booth and I pull the lever, I have to understand what my values are and how my values. You know, where they come from and how they tr- translate into political interests. And then I, I take that understanding into the public square, and then I find the candidate that I believe uh, both is best suited to articulate my values and to pursue my interests. And mm-hmm. that's how I would counsel most you know people to vote. Not yeah. to, you, as you said, based on personality or you know performance art or theatrics. Um, but but the extent to which a particular candidate, you know, endorses, believes in what I believe, and is willing to um, pursue the things that are important to me. A hundred percent. And uh, Delano Squires, really appreciate your commentary and your firm stance for the biblical worldview and how Christians should vote. And you know, this is why I'm a supporter of. Uh, Governor DeSantis, because I do think that, you know, regardless of what you believe about, um, you know, President Trump's personal faith, all of that, where he's coming down on policy right now, we have, as Steve D said in the very first segment, DeSantis is everything about the policy, but in a moral 
and more, um, in my view, a better way moving forward. But that's, you know, that's just my opinion. So we'll continue to talk about it here on Jenna Ellis in the Morning. Comments, Jenna at AFR.net. The views and opinions expressed in this broadcast may not necessarily reflect those of the American Family Association or American Family Radio.